Hi, my name's Lucy Schmitz, and I'm the senior podcast editor for the Georgetown Public Policy Review. Last week, in collaboration with GU Politics, I had the chance to sit down with Kate Nocera. Nocera is a current GU Politics fellow and is also the DC bureau chief for BuzzFeed News. We talked about reporting in the age of coronavirus, the pandemic, and reporting in DC more broadly. I hope that you enjoy our interview. Thank you very much. Hi. Hi, thanks again for joining us. Um, and um, without further ado, I say let's get started. Um, I would love to talk to you a little bit about the role of the media in covering coronavirus and disseminating information during this time of crisis, and then um, more about your career more broadly and, uh, and the role of the media um, and any advice you might have for future um, politicians, policymakers, and, um, and explainers uh, that might be at McCord or more broadly at Georgetown. Sure. Uh, great. Um, do, you want, do you want to ask me a question to start out with, or do you want me to just dive right in? Because I can do either. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't you dive in for a little bit? You can introduce yourself better than I can, certainly. Yeah. And then we'll um, get to some questions. Great. Um, well, I'm Kate Nocera. Um, I'm the DC Bureau Chief for BuzzFeed News, um, the Bureau Chief of my house currently, uh, as we're all working from home. Um, but I have been with BuzzFeed News since the beginning of, well, in September of 2016. And before that, I was at BuzzFeed News um, from about 2013 to 2015, with a year in between where I tried to do some communications work and didn't love it. Um, and before that I was at Politico, I covered Congress and for a while I, I was a healthcare reporter, um, which, you know, in no way prepared me for what is happening now, but, um, I certainly can speak to a little bit of it. Um, I would say that, uh, we've been working from home since about, I think right before you all went on spring break, um, we were pretty conservative early on uh, about making sure people were social distancing and working from home. And I'm really grateful that I worked for a company that was so on top of it so early. Um, we've also been covering uh, the coronavirus. I think the first sort of stories popped up in January from our science team, but now it is currently a all hands on deck all the time sort of situation. Everyone in the newsroom is working on it in some capacity. Um, so it has been really challenging to have for me, who is someone who um, covers politics. We've been go, go, go on the campaign for the last couple months. And there was just a very hard stop for us. Um, and just fully have had to shift gears. Um, so it's been fascinating. It's been really interesting. It's also been exhausting. You know, it's also, we're also human and reporters aren't superheroes, but we want to cover the superheroes who are out there every day um, on the front lines of this stuff. And it is it's kind of like, it's pretty next level for all of us. So. Yeah. You mentioned that it's a real ha all hands on deck operation, which totally makes sense. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about how this crisis has changed how different news divisions or, or departments work together or yeah. Uh, act? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, so at first I would say this was like just our science team was covering it. We have about five reporters on the science team and it was really just them who were paying attention and trying to make sense of it and trying to put it in context for Amer for an American audience. Um, and now we rely still very heavily on those reporters and that editor for their expertise, especially, uh, you know, there's a lot that we still don't know and how are we talking about things and what does this data say? Um, but we are doing so much more coordination, especially since we're all at our houses, you know, we're not able to all be in a meeting together. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of online conferences, uh, phone calls, Slack, making sure that we're able to, um, you know, know what the other person is doing, but uh, everyone has pitched in. Everyone has, you know, said, yes, this is what I absolutely want to be covering. And there's nothing else to cover. I mean, well, this is the biggest story of our lifetime. <laughs> exactly. And you mentioned as a reporter, but even just as a news observer, right? the attention is completely shifted away from obviously the 2020 campaign, but also more broadly, um, policy and politics issues that were um, fascinating up until about three weeks ago. Um, and so can you... Talk a little bit about how or if you're keeping tabs on sort of the more normal, I mean, what you were expecting to be reporting now. During yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Like, it's hard to, like, I had to remind myself the other day that, like, Bernie Sanders is still in the Democratic <laughs> primary, that that still happened, that um, we were reminded today that Wisconsin has a primary on Tuesday, that they have had not previously moved the governor decided today that he wanted to move it the legislature isn't going to move it that's a whole mess mm -hmm. we are actively thinking about ways to cover and report on the election especially in a world where many people might not be able to vote in person and so that has meant talking to a lot of people in different states about what in-person voting might look like and really how they need to get started on it now, if that's even going to be a possibility. Um, I think that, I think that, I think that the coronavirus and reporting on the coronavirus has, you know, it has sort of laid bare all the other policy issues though, you know, like there's no policy issue that is untouched by this domestic violence, gun control, Right. Uh, food, hunger, SNAP, the economy, every single piece of our world and every single thing that anyone had, you know, interest in writing about, um, this has touched. So yeah. it's not, you know, suddenly like <laughs> having expertise in policy is meaningless. It's actually really quite important now yeah. to understand the effects of of, of you know criminal justice like ever you know people in jail bail bonds mm -hmm. etc so it's it's been really um it's, it's been it's been revealing in that sure. way and speaking of policy expertise and more broadly reporting from washington i've been thinking about reporters a lot as um as these Congressional responses to uh, and legislative responses to coronavirus have been rolling out and have been um, changing a lot in real time, really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I wonder, in a time of crisis like this, when you're trying to distill policy or the process of policymaking for a broader audience, um, how do you figure out what is most meaningful or most, or most up to date uh, to focus on when there's, you know, three, I think three coronavirus response acts already and more to come, yeah. you know. So how are you prioritizing basically? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think it is a bit of a whack-a-mole situation right now, but I do think it's as, for us, so much of what we do is about um, people's personal experience and personal stories, even down to like the quizzes on the bus, on the bus side, right? Like, yeah. You know, tell us your favorite sandwich time character from Suar. Like that is something that is talking about you as a human being, even if it's all kind of, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not real. Um, but it's, uh, it, 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 BuzzFeed has always been about sharing and social and things you want to share with your friends and things that you, that you feel strongly about and relate to. And I think for us on the news side, that's always been sort of our guiding principle as well. So, for the stories that we're covering it's like how is this going to affect you as an individual what stories can we tell that are going to help you as a person so uh for us it's like student loans you know like how are people surviving with their shitty roommate who keeps going in and out of the of the apartment and mm -hmm. is practicing good social distancing i mean that's the kind of those are the kinds of stories we're telling. We've also gotten a ton of tips over, um, we've gotten a ton of tips over the like tip line uh, that we have. And uh, people have written in to talk about a lot about um, their, how their employers are treating them. So, you know, un hourly workers at Costco and Trader Joe's and, you know, places that we, are absolutely need right now um that are are struggling so yeah i really like your sort of personal uh touch at buzzfeed even to these broad political stories and i was wondering how you feel um the sort of buzzfeed model which i think is fairly unique um has changed or has um has impacted how people are consuming coronavirus news or uh, or other news during this time. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people have a lot of time to stare at their screens right now. Um, and uh, I do think that we do have a, an advantage, I think we have an advantage in that we're able to write news stories that are really relevant and important, but we also are able to tell stories that describe joy. And um, that's another thing that's been sort of in our ethos for a long time. Also, you know, very on the buzz side, like here's a lot of counter programming. Like if you're bored and don't want to just like watch the disaster unfold all day, like here's how to avoid the news. Also, Yeah, exactly. So I here's what you can look at. Definitely. Um, so, um, so I think, I think that for us, you know, people it, we have a built-in advantage in that people 
BuzzFeed has always been on the internet. BuzzFeed exists in Facebook and Twitter and, you know, shareable social media. And that is that I think that has been successful for us, especially, um, you know, during the, during this absolute just tragedy, you know, um, it's been, it's been hard, but like, I'm very, very glad that I can work at a place that can get information to lots and lots of people. Yeah. That must be really rewarding. Um, yeah. Thinking about getting, you know, true and, and fact checked information to the public. I'm thinking of, uh, the fact that there's been a larger debate in the media about covering, um, the coronavirus, uh, task force mm-hmm. press conferences and, and or filtering um, the task force and Donald Trump. And I'm wondering how you um, in your bureau mm-hmm. decide what, what is newsworthy, what is fact checked enough and what is, um, what is, what should be reported out of those, out of those um, sort of press conferences. I would say we don't report on about 90% of what he says in the press conference. Cause um, it's that, you know, I, we don't have the time to, he's talking for two hours every night and like no one has the time to <laughs> fact check and go through all of that. But if there's something very tangible, like, um, everyone needs to wear masks, everyone should stay home for 30 days, um, that kind of thing, or something just like so blatantly wrong that we have to um, correct it, like Jared Kushner's comments that the federal stockpile was not meant to go to states, which is like... What is it for then? Just <laughs> not true. Um, so that... So like that kind of stuff. It's like that was just so blatantly wrong that we felt sure. like we had to correct it. And then sure. the um, the the stuff that's just sort of like tangible, actual information from our government that seems like vetted, right? Like sometimes it's like sometimes it's coming through a Trump filter, but it does seem like oh, the federal government wants us to stay home for the next thirty days. Right, right, Got right. It. So you can tell what's off the cuff versus what's been the right process. Sort it's of. hard sometimes. I mean, I, I've, I've seen him in person. It's, it's no easy task, for sure, to know. It's hard. He talks so much. You know, I've done pool duty, which is where different reporters follow him around and ask questions over the course of the day. Uh, but, you know, a couple of months ago, I was doing pool duty back when impeachment was a thing remember impeachment uh, <laughs> yeah that's gonna be like the smallest footnote in the year 2020 which is just crazy to think about um but the he said something very newsworthy in the middle of a Q&A with reporters and I did not pick up on it because it was like it was in the middle of this sort of rant but he had essentially admitted that he ha- had asked, you know, the Ukrainian president to investigate Joe Biden. It was like the first time he said that, like, yes, I absolutely asked him to do that. And I missed it because it was like in the middle of all this stuff. Right. I mean, other people picked up on it and said, you know, we should probably yeah, get on so much, If there's so yeah. much information, it can be hard to filter for sure. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> um, sort of. 
going off of the relationship between Trump and the media, I'd like to get to Haley's question. I think it's a good one. How has the media response to coronavirus shaped um, politicians' response and sort of what's the interaction between the two? Sorry, can you ask that again? Oh, sorry, yes. Um, how has the media response to coronavirus shaped politicians and the public's response to the... Mm. Um, that is a good question and a very hard one to answer. I think, um, so I think early on when things were really confined to China and we did not have a great sense of A, what the virus was, B, what the numbers coming out of China actually were, because China was hiding a lot of things. I think it was hard for people to put it in context for Americans. And there was a sense of wanting to balance um, this is serious, but also uh, also like you shouldn't panic because there wasn't really a reason to panic in December and early January. And I do think that's where a lot of the like, this isn't as bad as the flu stuff came from, yeah. which is which is not like, like, I think it was not a question of, like, the virus, but about, like, the deaths and sort of, like, the devastation and the way in which we take the flu seriously. I think that was probably a, mis a mistake, right? But also, uh, we have to go off of what we know at the time. And there was, frankly, not that much information to, to go off of. Um, so I think that certainly had a, maybe had an impact early on, but by, you know, by mid February, early February, mid to early, like people knew that this was going to be a big deal and it was going to spread and like the WHO really, really waited to call it a pandemic, even though everyone knew it really was. And I think that was a mistake on there. You know, I don't think that was the media. Um, sure, sure. I mean, that. there have definitely been mistakes and, and flaws. And I think how everybody has responded because it's so, it's such an unusual event. Like, yeah. it's part of, part of the problematic responses or the trouble with responding is the sort of unprecedented nature. Of we have nothing to compare it to. I saw the other day, um, in a story that someone wrote for us, um, Ryan Broderick, that uh, if the current, you know, death tolls are in the U.S. are uh, as they're projected to be, it's going to be the equivalent of like 30 to 69 11s a day. You know what I mean? It's just like to wrap your mind around that number is impossible for us. You know, like there are a thousand deaths in the U.S. yesterday. And I'm sure there are a lot of deaths in the U.S. on every given day, but a thousand deaths from from the coronavirus, which is, you know, it's hard to it's hard to even fathom for any of us. Yeah, totally. I mean, that that makes sense, and it's it's definitely hard to get my head around just as a, yeah. as a whole person, for sure. Um, yeah. Reporting from D.C., particularly in this time, I know you're. The, the main event that everybody is worrying about is the medical component of this pandemic, but there is also um, political response to the pandemic, and we talked a little bit about Donald Trump, but more broadly, what do you think the trade-off is or the balance is between 
reporting um, that focuses directly on, say, medical advice, medical experts, and um, and the and reporting on the um, response in Washington, whether that's um, on the Hill or, yeah. or at the White House. I don't think political reporters should try to do medical reporting <laughs> at all. And I think it's worked out not very well for the ones that have tried. I think that like trying to put a political lens on something so devastating is hard to do. Like, I think we saw it with the New York times the other day. It was like, Trump said this and governor said this, you know, it was like a, he said, she said situation, which was like not useful for everyone. It's not a normal political fight at all. Um, but I do think that political reporters do have a role to play, which is um, keeping people up to date on whether the government is going to function and do things that they need them to do. Um, and you can have Democrats and Republicans fight over the details, but I think that the, the, they need to be working on, you know, the eventual consequences or the right now consequences, but all the consequences of what this is going to, what this is going to be. And I think that it is a dangerous game to play uh, for reporters to political reporters in particular, to try to put a political veil on, um, on, you know, a medical issue. That said, the fight between New York State and Donald Trump is a deeply political one that is going to actually have effects on real people uh, between the masks and the ventilators and, you know, the, the fights over what uh, the federal government's going to give New York. And, um, and it is okay to call that a political fight. You just have to, you know, point out that it's a stupid one. Yeah, totally. That, that makes sense. Um, there is a role, though, I believe, um, in political or for political reporters in drilling down on the policy, um, drilling down into the policy of, say, the CARES Act or the, um, or the other response acts um, that have come out in recent weeks. Um, and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your Bureau's process of um, reporting on those pieces of legislation. Yeah, um, sure. I think it was really, they're hard to report on because they come out, they're written in about 24 hours and then voted on immediately. And so you can get kind of the top lines from people and um, and then you have to read the, the thing, you know. So, I, you know, I feel comfortable generally going on a first story with the top lines, but we're doing like a longer explainer on what's actually in the bill and what it matters. And you can also find lots of um, lots and lots of mistakes and interesting things. There's a provision in there that we're looking into right now about um, sex work and people who make their money either through like camera work or um, through sex work. And, you know, there's, basically if you do that there's not there's nothing there's nothing there's no money for you it's just an interesting thing to point out yeah yeah totally interesting yeah. i hadn't even thought of that <laughs> um yeah that makes sense though and that's a particularly vulnerable community right so it's just like but th that was specifically written into that bill you know so you have to find like you have to go and you have to read it and you have to figure out you know what um 
what is that what is actually there but sometimes that it takes a while because these are very very long bills sure no that makes that totally makes sense and um i guess that leads into a question that's a little broader than just coronavirus but more broadly how do you and your team go about cultivating um, sources and relationships on the Hill and, and, and in the city more broadly uh, that can lead to sort of consistent and reliable information during a crisis like this or during a fast-moving story? Yeah. Well, in the before times, which is what we call it now, um, like most of the reporters, you know, my office is funny. It's pretty big. There are a lot of people in there. Uh, like I have like a, you know, 16 to 17 person office and it's usually just me and my deputy who are in there because everyone else is either on the Hill or in federal court or in the agencies, like meeting their sources and talking to them. There's nothing that can really replace standing in a hallway for 12 hours a day waiting for a negotiation to be done and going and doing that day after day after day you really get to know people um, and they see you and, you know, you see them and you're all part of the same ecosystem. And that has been, that's kind of like how, that's how people get sources. Is you, you just like show up or you write a story that someone takes issue with and they call you and then they say, let's have coffee and I can explain to you why you're wrong. <laughs> that's how I've gotten a lot of sources before too. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. But in this moment where you can't have that sort of casual interaction as much, mm -hmm. how are you maintaining those relationships and how are you um, sort of getting your information? Is it just exactly? It's like, it's like almost easier now because everyone's at home and like, oh, really? on their, on their computers and on their phones and are able to like text back pretty quickly. I mean, the people that are the best sources are people I've known for years or people that my reporters have known for years. And so they're able to text or, you know, call uh, right. and people are getting on the phone pretty quickly. But I do think that like, there are a lot of um, interesting advocacy groups. If we do have questions about policies, like, all those people want to get their message out about their policies. So people are picking up their phones pretty quickly right now. That actually, that totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I want to ask a little bit about other things beyond coronavirus, but I'm sure mm -hmm. that there are tie-ins tie everywhere because as you said, sort of everything comes back to that now. Um, but Generally, in your position as the DC Bureau Chief, when you are hearing you know, from lots of sources, lots of different stories, how do you go about prioritizing what sort of makes a headline or what, um, or what should be reported on other than sort of just whatever the news of the day is? Yeah. Um. That's a really, it's a hard question too. I'm sure. It's like, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's not, it's second nature in some ways, you know, like you, you sort of know it when you see it. Um, and uh, for us, because we're not, we're not like Politico, like Politico has like 300 reporters. They're all, you know, experts in their subjects. Um they're also reporting on every single thing that happens on their beats every single day. And I have four reporters on the Hill 
two reporters in court and then a couple on the campaign. So I do have to, like, I just inherently have to be choosier about what it is that I'm covering. Um, so that means stuff that is exclusive to us, uh, stuff that can be really relatable to people who are at home reading. Um, obviously, if there's like huge news on Capitol Hill, impeachment, whatever, like we're there, we're on it. But we're not like Politico. We're not like in the back room. Like people are not refreshing our website to, but, to like, find out what's happening from um, to find out what's happening from like a budget standpoint. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they're not coming to BuzzFeed for that. So it totally. gives me a lot more freedom. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And you mentioned having a few reporters on the campaign trail. Um, mm -hmm. and heading into 2020, we have not only a presidential election, but also um, a third of the Senate is up for election and all the House members, obviously. And yeah. so I'm wondering how, um, how the process of sort of keeping reporting on those um, campaigns, especially the big ones that still require reporting, you know, the presidential election uh, has changed in the era of coronavirus or how, how has the campaign I mean, it stopped. Uh, like it stops because everyone was on planes for three months. Like there's nothing, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the Senate campaigns. That's an interesting question. I think that like there will be, obviously like oppo stuff i think that we are watching really closely how campaigns try to get their message out or like how do you get turnout if you can't go door to door you know like are people just gonna yeah like there's no it's just gonna fundamentally change how it's done and it is still too early to say what it's gonna look like because everyone's just at home kind of waiting for whatever our life looks like now, you know? Right. Uh, I would not be surprised if like the conventions have a much, much smaller imprint. That makes sense too. Um, yeah. When I'm thinking about um, the effects of the coronavirus, both politically and medically, obviously, but also economically, um, I wonder whether, um, whether, the response is going to be a more um, to more favor incumbents because it's sort of a war mm -hmm. footing or, or there will be a swing away from incumbents because of say an economic crash. Um, and what has your reporting shown so far? What do you think? What do you anticipate seeing? Um, I don't know that our reporting has shown much yet, but I do think that, um, I do think that known quantities are going to be harder to beat, especially if you are doing in-person or you're doing vote by mail and you can't like campaign because then people do go for name ID. And if you can't tell, if you can't, if you're like a new candidate who's running for the house, you can't tell like your voters, like why you're better than the other guy you know, it's going to be really, really hard. Like when people get a ballot, they're going to say, oh, I know this person. 
and you know i don't know this person and so and like the unknown is often scarier than what's known for people right definitely that makes sense and if you yeah if you're an upstart campaigner you don't you just you don't have access to right. the public right like aoc would not be in congress if this was happening right now cuz she would cuz like she was such a campaigner like all she did was go around the neighborhood, go talk to people, see people face to face, and then knock on my lovely GU politics uh, fellow colleague, Joe Crowley, was that he did not do enough to do person-to-person campaigning. He was really focused on D.C. and going up the ranks in leadership, and um, I don't think she would be in Congress if this was happening right now, if like she was running and this was happening right now. Huh, that's an interesting thing to think about. I, that make, again, that makes sense. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, that, I mean, totally. Um, yeah. Further, just sort of generally, um, I'd like to get some of your, sort of the advice that you've been given, giving as a GU politics fellow and that you've yeah. been, um, that you've been, what, what you've been talking about in your, um, in your discussion groups. And so I was wondering if you have sort of advice for policy wonks, McCourt students or other, other, other policy sort of focused people um, about how to make policy and politics sort of more understandable for our general audience. Mm -hmm. Well, reporters always appreciate it when you can break down a policy for a general audience. I mean, I think that, I always appreciate the policy wonks who are willing to take a lot of time with me and explain to me something like I'm three years old. I moved, to give you an example, when I moved from New York to DC and became a healthcare reporter, having no experience covering anything about healthcare or Congress or politics or the Affordable Care Act, which I ostensibly was hired to cover, I had to spend a lot of time sitting down with people who were steeped in this stuff and have them very slowly walk me through incredibly complex issues. Um, And I'm so grateful for that because then it made me be like a better reporter at the end of the day because I had such a fundamental understanding of something that I could then turn around and translate it in a really simple way some good advice about how to be a good source um yeah i would say be very generous like be generous with your time if you want someone to really understand your issue like don't expect reporters to know everything because they won't yeah Yeah. no that makes sense and if we're reporting um sort of from the other side do you have any um suggestions about what types of um language or breakdowns resonate with a wider audience? Yeah, I mean, I think explainers, like like the one we're doing on the stimulus will um, be good. Just like, here's who qualifies for the money. Here's how you get the money. Here are the different piles of money. Here's where this pile is going. Here's where that goes. And, and like breaking it down sort of step by step. We've always found that um, really, really useful. Uh, we've done it several times with several different big bills because all these bills are like sweeping, you know, uh, sometimes and you have to like really break it down for people. 
um, <laughs> or honing in on one provision that's really going to affect people either in a negative or positive way um, that is, that's undercovered. Um, that's also been successful for us. Um, what else have we done? Yeah, and anything, uh, yeah, and sort of more broadly, is there any advice from your, um, from your policy discussion or your discussion groups uh, that you'd like to impart to a wider audience who may not have been able to attend? I don't know. Kiske and Marguerite are both on the line, so maybe they can, oh, yeah, they can maybe, say yeah. what, 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 what wisdom I've imparted. I mean, my biggest piece of advice that I keep telling people at, at Georgetown in particular, I'm very impressed with everyone uh, who is at Georgetown, who, who works so hard. You guys all work so hard, but like, you know, you, you don't have to know exactly what you're doing all the time, hundred percent of the time. And it's okay. <laughs> like it's, you know, especially right now, things are super uncertain. Um, it does, really work out even though you can get knocked off course sometimes like you know you, you you do end up finding your way and you all are very smart that even if you get you know knocked off balance a little bit I'm sure you'll find your way back but I didn't figure out what I wanted to do till I was like 26 or 27 so well, I mean, that's good to hear for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to open the floor to other people, either um, people who have been attending your discussion groups and might have more to add or, and or could be the same people who have questions, uh, other questions for you that I haven't uh, posed yet. Okay. Sounds great. Anybody else? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. Uh, so GPPR, we have our spring edition coming out um, in two weeks. And our theme for this year is power in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one thing that I would be curious more about is like, uh, can you maybe talk more about how um, the media, how the, evolve, how the, the, evolving, the evolution of the media in the 21st century is kind of um, shaping how power is exercised now? and especially hmm. these circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, so I, I think that the media is like really concentrated in a couple of different places. Can you hear me? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, okay. Yeah. A couple of different places. Um, and I don't think that's good. I think that um, we are letting a lot of power not go to account by not, um, having proper funding mechanisms for local news and having so much of the news concentrated in three or four places. Um, you know, even like my news outlet, um, which I love and I'm so proud of, um, you know, it's tenuous. Like digital media, it's a scary situation right now. Um, but places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, um, are gonna have perhaps a, like some lasting power, but what's happening right now is going to be absolutely devastating for local news and reporters who are there trying to hold local leaders to account. You know, I, I think it is going to have a, 
broadly negative effect on the democracy um, because there won't be people in place to, you know, tell these stories. Interesting. And so do you see a path forward for local media that, um, that could be sort of salvaged in this digital era? I mean, I think that, uh, I think that there's going to have to be a bailout for journalists. Um, and I don't think it's crazy to think that or propose that. I don't think it'll happen, but I think it's not a terrible idea given the state of the industry and what coronavirus is going to do to it. Um, I think that a lot of local news outlets will move to a nonprofit model and sort of you, you have sort of already started to see that and I think that that's broadly a, a great thing. Um, you just need people on the ground in places who are willing to do it and if you're like a media veteran who's been through the last 20 years, like you're pretty demoralized at this point in terms of wanting to, to jump back in. I mean, it's not exactly like, it's not an easy gig, I'd say. <laughs> it's very much like, feels a little like the priesthood in some ways. Like, it's just like you're calling. It's just what you do. That's how I feel about it. I, that, again, it makes sense. Um, I, Ido's question was making me think a little bit more about the relationship between um, sources and reporters and sort of the political powerful class and the journalistic powerful class. And how do you think, I was thinking specifically of um, Yumi Shelsinder and the, um, the relationship that President Trump has sort of developed with her where he often targets her for, um, for, attacks not to use too harsh a word um, for, for being a black woman yes for being a black woman exactly, yeah. exactly for being a black woman and I was wondering how you see sort of the relationship or the tension between um holding powerful accountable and um and access or the ability to do your job in the first place of getting yeah I mean, both your job getting the information out and yeah. holding people and how do you see that tension? I mean, it is a tension, right? Like, it, it has always been a tension. It was a tension before Trump. It was a, you know, a tension before Obama. Um, I would say that I think that, like, D.C. used to be a lot more transactional um, between reporters and politicians. And everyone would, like, you know, in sort of the good old boy days, like, you know, you'd hit your print deadline and then go, drink with your sources all night and that doesn't really happen anymore which is like broadly a pretty good thing you know like <laughs> it's probably better for democracy yeah. and the press. generally better <laughs> um and uh but i think that i think it is always i think like the good reporters if you have a good story about a member of congress or someone in the administration if you are a real reporter there is no planet on which you don't report that story even if the person is like your best source and you think they're so lovely and you know, mm -hmm. you like you, you know, can't believe that they would do something like that. Well, believe it. They've all done something like that. And, um, <laughs> and like, I don't know any reporter worth his or her salt that wouldn't go after that story. So, but I, you know, the, the, the white house is a whole other 
ball of wax. It's a, it's a difficult place. I think that for a long time, the Correspondents Association, of which I am a member, but a peripheral one, um, uh, they thought they were playing by a different set of rules. They thought they were playing by the old rules. They thought they were playing by the rules that had been in place for years and years. There were niceties. This is, you know, like you got into a fight with the press secretary, but then everything was fine and the TV guys were in the front row and like that was how it all worked. And Trump completely, completely blew that up. And I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing because I do think that the there is a pushback that has ignited in the press corps that is good and important. Now, that's not to say there aren't people there that are still trying to play by some playbook that doesn't exist anymore. There definitely are. And um, you see it a lot and it, it, it'll gross you out, but it's, uh, it's less and less. It's happening less and less. Well, I mean, that's encouraging. Um, definitely. Yeah. And then um, I have a couple final questions for you, but if anybody else has anything you'd like to pose. You can raise your hand. You can press yeah, the or, or, yeah, or just shout out. It's fine. Yes, you can now. Um, well, I'll ask a question and you guys think of another one. Um, we have like five more minutes before I think some people have to head to class. So okay. um, I was wondering if you think there's a story either that has been overshadowed by coronavirus or within sort of the coronavirus news sphere that's being undercovered that you'd like to see get more attention. Mm. I, I, it's starting to get more attention, but there are a couple of stories in the beginning that were like, coronavirus is the great equalizer and like poor people and rich people can get it. And like, actually coronavirus is not the great equalizer. And like, if you are, rich you get to stay at home I think it's exposed you know just a real it, it like really has exposed so much about our society in terms of well and getting like, testing even sorry I didn't mean to yeah no absolutely like the the fact that like the entire Utah jazz got tested and uh, a lot of members of congress have gotten tested without showing symptoms um it's been it's been I I, I, I mean and this is going to be really devastating for poor neighborhoods, for, you know, black and brown neighborhoods, for, for lots of different people, for lots of different reasons. That's not to say rich people can't die of coronavirus. Of course they can. Um, but I do think that, like, the, the impact, like, if you are, like, a poor black kid in D.C. and you can't go back to school for the rest of the year and you don't have access to Internet, or someone who can spend time with you and teach you. I mean, I think the inequalities in the teaching system are going to be really, really stark. Right. Um, and the, the myth of being able, everybody being able to homeschool during this time. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's just not true. I mean, even lots of, like, middle-class parents aren't going to be able to homeschool because they have to um, Jobs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think that like, you know, I, I think that like, it is hard for me to say like, what is not being covered right now? Cause this is it. This is all we cover now. Right. Right. Yeah. The new era. Yes. Um, yeah. all right. Well, I 
want to thank you for talking with us today and doing this joint thank event. You guys. Thank you, and thank you for everybody who attended. Thank you so much for watching this special edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I so enjoyed interviewing Kate Nocera. For more from GPPR, please go to gppreview.com to check out our other podcasts and work from the other teams at the review. Thank you so much.